Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. The fight is growing. E equals MC. That all men are created About the future innovation. And growing strength in the air. Tear this is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Finding Your Frequency. I'll be your host for the day. Ryan Treasure, Jeff Spinard is out there taking over the world, and he'll be on the next interview with us. Today's a little, little different kind of show a little different than our normal let's talk about entrepreneurship let's talk about how you built your business let's talk about technology let's talk about uh, spirituality uh, last couple of episodes we've we we talked to dr siri uh, we also talked to dr crystal white and both of those interviews were kind of centered around uh, you know getting in touch with who you are as a person, leveraging uh, meditation to uh, re-energize your frequencies with the earth and, and those types of things. And so today we're going to be uh, talking to a guest about a little bit of a different subject. Uh, today we talked to Dr. Donald Reisick, uh, and Donald Reisick is currently the Emeritus Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, and served as the chief of nephrology and hypertension at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center from 1993 to 2017. His research interests have focused on complications of immunosuppression, immune monitoring of kidney transplant recipients, and has published more than 180 articles and books and 35 book chapters. Welcome to the show, Dr. Donald Reisick. Brian, thanks, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you being on. Uh, it's really cool uh, the work that you do. You know, reading your bio and looking at, you know, some of the things that you've done uh, as it relates to kidney transplant recipients and immune monitoring for that. Uh, I did a show recently with a gentleman who is leveraging stem cell research uh, to help people with kidney problems and uh, some some really cool, interesting technologies and and new kind of modalities uh, that are kind of popping up because of uh, uh, technology advances in that area. Uh, and I know kidneys are an extremely important function of the human body and uh, kudos to you because uh, we have to filter that blood, right? Right. Well, thanks for uh, for highlighting what's going on in the world of transplantation and <clears throat> stem cell transplantation is an example of pioneering research uh, based on you know existing information about current status of organ transplantation, where it has been and where we'd like it to go. Part of my message today is a totally different topic. I talk about my wife's medical problem, which was nothing to do with the transplant, but with dementia. Yeah. And in the case of her illness, uh, you know, there, there, we need more research. There's a poor understanding of these disorders and therefore not as much research as we need to come up with uh, cures and treatments. Yeah, yeah, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head. It seems like every time I turn around and I'm talking to a friend of mine or, <coughs> excuse me, a family member, uh, who has uh, an elderly family member? It seems like uh, you know dementia and and Alzheimer's and and those things are a lot more prevalent in the older community than it seems like than they were like you know forty fifty years ago. Is is there research around that? Is that really true? 
Well, m maybe. Um, even I, as a physician, was startled uh, once I dealt with my own wife's illness to appreciate how, how common it is in terms of talking, as you said, to friends and family who know somebody with dementia or some family with a family member who has dementia. You know, it's estimated that three to five million people in the United States have dementia, but I'm not sure what the, where that figure comes from. It's probably under-reported. Uh, and um, <clears throat> it's important to differentiate some of the organic brain syndromes that lead to dementia from the dementia that I call senile dementia, which is part of getting older. Um, another term that's used interchangeably is vascular dementia. You know, as we get older, we all get hardening of our blood vessels. That's why adults who get older have heart attacks and strokes. But in the brain, when small vessels are affected, this can affect the function of the brain and your cognitive skills. And that, that transforms into memory loss, repetitiveness, and the things that we're used to seeing in our old grandparents and other old relatives. Um, um, my wife died at the age of 64. I would hardly call that old. Uh, and so there are other forms of dementia that occur at younger ages and have more specific clinical characteristics other than just old age. Yeah, and I guess that's probably most people's question is they look at, you know, that that and, and wonder, okay, is it just a byproduct of old age? Is it something that is hereditary, you know, and, and really focusing on trying to figure out what the causes of those are because it's, you know, definitely well, something not, that... It's not uncommon to see multiple cases in one family, but that's not exactly the same, mm -hmm. the same as hereditary as opposed to just very common. The, uh, the fact is, you probably also know people who have lived into their 80s, 90s, or even over 100 years old who are sharp as tacks yeah. and haven't lost their cognitive skills. So it's not something that affects everybody. And there's a great debate in the medical field about is aging a disease process or are there certain things that happen with aging that are just inevitable? Uh, and I don't know the answer to the question. That's where more research is, is needed. And if aging is a disease process, then how do we fix it. <laughs> it may not be fixable, but uh, there's little research into that form of dementia or any of the other forms that we can talk about. Yeah, and that's really interesting because, you know, you don't really know, you know, as you start to deal with it, really what, what you can do. And I know that you have some firsthand experience and, you know, have written a book as well, uh, Lynn's Last Christmas, A Battle with Dementia. Uh, I mean, let, let's talk about that. Uh, I know that our listeners are always looking for information on how they can solve a problem or, or, or make their lives better. Uh, and in your experience with dealing, you know, with this with this disease and in and, and, and your own family, uh, what are some of the challenges that someone can expect if they're, you know, knowing that this is, is onset and it's obviously going to be, you know, going from a, a one to a 10 on the scale? It, it doesn't it doesn't get reversed. It just gets worse. So what, what kind of things can one can expect uh, to be dealing with in that type of situation? Well, I can only tell you about our own uh circumstances when I say our I'm referring to myself and my adult children who have been very supportive through this entire process but in in our case or in my wife's case <clears throat> she was probably ill for at least three to four years before she passed away there are other cases dementia that last much longer than that there are probably cases that are much shorter so every case is a little bit different and um, honestly we look back at her life and think that three or four years before she died she was showing just repetitiveness and short-term memory loss that, again, we attribute it to we're all getting older and it happens to a lot of us as we get older. Um, within a year, she started having problems with ambulation, weakness of her legs and falling frequently. And it was that at that time 
that I recognize this isn't just getting old and forgetting a few things. She's got some neurologic disorder. So every case is a little bit different, but at that point, when we admitted that she was ill and that this just was an old age or a nuisance, uh, you know, we realized, my kids more so than I, embarrassing as a doctor, we realized that we needed to get medical evaluation and, and hopefully medical care for, uh, for her problem. And, and is that process kind of getting that evaluation? Is that a, a tough process? Is it something that uh, a, a medical professional can, you know, diagnose in a short amount of time or, or how, how does that process work? Uh, it's variable. Uh, in my case, I was hampered by the fact that uh, my wife, despite the fact that she was married to a physician for 40 years, was not not very keen about uh, established medicine and taking care of herself in terms of preventive measures and usual office visits and that sort of thing. So I struggled to get her to see anyone. <clears throat> uh, dementias are, are most often cared for by neurologists and sometimes psychiatrists. The the gentleman that I eventually took her to happened to be both a neurologist and psychiatrist, which I thought was very convenient, especially since many friends and family members thought at some point she was just profoundly depressed, which really wasn't the case. The evaluation, uh, the initial evaluation in our case was about a two-hour mental status examinations, and neurologists can do two-minute mental status examinations or two-hour mental status examinations. And at the end of that examination, the most that our guy could tell me is that, yep, she's definitely demented and has memory loss, but we can't quite put a name on it. This is undifferentiated. It's not Alzheimer's disease. It's not Parkinson's disease. It's not some of the classic diseases. But she clearly has dementia. At that point, he wanted further evaluation, basically brain scans, MRIs, additional blood tests. Unfortunately, my wife went through the first evaluation and it was like pulling hair or getting her to do uh, any of those things that he recommended. And almost a year elapsed uh, before we actually got her hospitalized and had some of those things done. So I, I think that that um, scenario and how it worked out for us is different from one case to another, Ryan. Yeah, every 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 person is a little bit different in, in, in that respect. And do you do you think that her having dementia played a role also in, you know, like her uh, you know, her unwillingness, I, I guess maybe that's not the right word, but um, like it, d- did the dementia make it more difficult for you to get treatment for her once you guys kind of figured that out because she didn't really want to go to the doctor or, um, yes, or only, up in, only us up to the very end in the last few months of her life where I, I think she finally realized that she was quite sick. You know, for a long time, Ryan, she refused to see uh, non-nuclear family members or friends or neighbors and actually, quite a few of those people were angry at me, thinking that I was preventing them from seeing her, her, her as an old-time friend. But she, she just refused to admit she was sick and didn't want to see people in her uh, uh, disabled condition. At the end, she finally acquiesced, and we had a, you know, a, a train full of people come through our home to, if you will, make their last visits with her. But it was too little too late at that point. Um, yeah, I think... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, her reluctance to seek medical care obviously early on wasn't related to the dementia, but it certainly complicated things. And uh, she had a, a mistrust of the uh, medical system related to a number of uh, issues with her management over a period of three or four years. And it was very difficult for me as a doctor to get her to break through and understand that she needed help. 
Yeah, I have a family member who is very similar to that with the with the dentist, uh, right? And it's and it all it stems from a really bad experience that um, this family member of mine had at the dentist when they were like a teenager, and so because they had this bad experience uh, experience at the dentist a couple times, like they just didn't go to the dentist, and now here we are all like in our forties, and that family member just really has really bad teeth, and it's you know calling other family members asking for you know financial assistance to help you know get these things fixed and you know it's just so sad that people have to deal with you know bad experiences uh with any kind of health care or or what to you know have them not continue it you know it sounds familiar and i describe this in the book but in my wife's case um about four years before she passed away she had to deal with uh, colon cancer that was discovered on a screening colonoscopy, and her mother died of horrendous colon cancer several years earlier. Um, unfortunately, the uh, colon cancer surgery was supposed to be really straightforward. It was going to be done laparoscopically, but it became complicated. I don't need to go into those details, but what was supposed to be a three-day hospitalization turned out to be over a month in the hospital. And so her attitude about medicine and surgery went from bad to worse. At one point during the hospitalization, she was undergoing a procedure, and my daughter, who's in the medical field, and I were both sitting in the room watching the procedure being done, a minor procedure, just the insertion of an IV catheter. And for whatever reason, uh, my wife had what I'm sure was a grand mal seizure, which I recognized as a doctor, and my daughter recognized it as well. Um, It turns out that they called a code, all the doctors and nurses ran down to her room, and by the time they got there, she was normal and told us that she probably just fainted or had a fainting spell, which I'm sure wasn't the case. But, you know, that was the first time, not understanding why this woman would have a seizure in the middle of a benign procedure. First time I said, maybe there's something wrong with her brain. And I honestly do think that that was the platform for what happened in the next three or four years where she started showing signs of a true organic brain syndrome. Yeah, so that was probably like the first little you know, hint or, you know, um, identifier that there was something to come? In my mind, looking back at at it retrospectively, we certainly didn't think about that at that time. But by the way, my wife had, was in the hospital for a month, had part of her colon removed, and still refused to tell her own sister and brother and other extended family members that she had any problem at all. I mean, they discovered it eventually. It was a hardship. She refused to let me talk to her own family about what was going on with her. It made it very difficult for me and my own kids to to uh, to make any progress with her care. Yeah, I bet it was tough. But at the same time, too, I got to give her kudos. She sounds like she was a, a very, very tough human being. Oh, she was one <laughs> tough woman, Ryan, and, and and not always in good ways. I mean, she uh, she was very opinionated and. I mean, I, I love her for it and still do, but um, yeah, she, she, she wasn't all soft and fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, uh, I've, been, I've been married for quite some time. My wife and I have been together since high school, and, uh, you know, she's, she's super opinionated, too, and she's definitely not fuzzy. Uh, she tells it <laughs> like it is. But I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think about it, too, and I'm always like – if I had a different wife that wasn't so brash sometimes and, you know, a little bit more, you know, fluffy, uh, uh, you know, what I would, would that, would that be better? And in my head, I'm like, nah, nah, I think it's better that my wife is brash. (laughs) To give you a pictorial, uh, uh, view of my wife, when I finally got her to see this neuro neurologist, psychiatrist, 
Uh, I drove her to the appointment and walked into the waiting area and this doctor came out to visit us and she stated in no uncertain terms, I don't want to be here. I don't want my husband in the room when you examine me and this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. <laughs> that's, that's not a good way to, to get off the ground with a new physician, but he, he sort of understood that she was difficult and dealt with it very nicely, I might point out. Yeah, he's going, oh my goodness, this is going to be a tough day. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, when we talk about finding your frequency, you know, I think that's the, the most important thing to, to talk about in this space is, you know, what, what was that aha moment for you that, you know, you, you, you know, that switch just flipped in your head and you said, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to tell this story. What, what was that, that, that caused you to find that frequency to follow that journey? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, to be honest, uh, this book, which is very short, it's a less than a 20,000 word memoir, but um, I actually wrote <clears throat> the bulk of it, or at least the bulk of the first draft within a couple weeks of her funeral. And that may sound bizarre or, or not right, but indeed I, I um, came home from the funeral ceremony. I left my kids back to entertain family and friends at a reception, but I was mentally and physically exhausted and asked them to take me home and pull out a piece of paper and just uh, impulsively said, I'm going to start writing down my memories, not only of this funeral and of her death, but the entire three to four year debacle that we went through. And um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what motivated me, but in retrospect, I, I think honestly, uh, uh, seeing what she went through, um, I wanted to write down memories that I could reread as many times as I wanted in the future, uh, thinking, hey, maybe I'll get the same thing in five, 10, 15 years, lose my memory and not even re be able to remember what my wife went through. And it was a sort of the subconscious motivation. Honestly, I, I wasn't gonna publish this at all. Um, I've, I've written other things kind of as a diary that I just hide under my bed and pull out every few years to reread. <clears throat> that was my initial intent. My children, particularly my daughter, saw me fumbling with this manuscript and picked it up and read it. And this is my daughter who said, you know, Dad, this is a common ailment and there's so many families out there who have dealt with the same thing. You should really publish this because it could provide solace to families who have dealt with the same thing we have. And I appreciated that. Uh, and that was one objective in publishing it. My other objective, I've mentioned before, um, this whole this group of disorders called dementias have just not received enough attention, I don't think, in terms of research to understand the root causes and therefore to come up with treatments or cures. So my second objective is to raise awareness about this particular problem. I mean, in some ways, the book, the memoir, it's not just related, it's just not just about dementia, it's about end of life care. And so many families do that, whether it's dementia, cancer, heart disease, or some other illness. So there are, are themes other than the concern about dementia, but that, that's the one that I wanted to highlight for the sake of raising awareness. Yeah, and and I think that's a good thing for people to read about too is end of life care. I dealt with that when my father passed away of cancer, and it's a really tough thing. It's it's a it's a weird, hard, scary transition going from your current life, everyday life to, you know, having to go home and and take care of somebody who is, you know, on their deathbed and, you know, I watched my father, you know, the hospice folks wheeled in a a bed and all that right there at our house and it was definitely a tough thing and if you're not prepared for it it's a whole new 
you know, a whole new adventure of uncertainty. Uh, and it's kind of hard to navigate if you aren't, you know, emotionally prepared for that. Right. I'd like to talk about that a little bit because um, the, the proceeds from this book, by the way, are being donated to the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, but also to my local hospice service affiliated with the University Hospice of Cleveland, which is where I worked for almost 40 years. Um, the uh, um, it, uh, We hospitalized Lynn in right after Christmas. That was thus the name of the book of 2017. And in January of 2018, she was hospitalized. And at some point, the physicians taking care of her uh, declared that there was nothing else that could be done for her. She was going to be bed bound and get mentally worse over time. And the only options were to put her into a nursing home or to consider hospice care. Now, <clears throat> your father had cancer. I'm sorry to hear that. But there's a misconception, I think, out there that hospice care is just that. It's for terminally ill cancer patients who fail chemotherapy and go home for a few days on a morphine drip maybe, made comfortable, and they die within a few days. It turns out that hospice care uh, in includes the care of patients with illnesses that can sometimes last years uh, or many months, not, not just a few days, and that's a misconception. It sounds like you did what we did because there was another option which was to consider inpatient hospice or home hospice. To me, inpatient hospice was just short of a nursing home. And uh, knowing that my wife was going to die probably in the near future, I really wanted her at home yeah. and thought I'd emotionally handle her dying at home, which is what happened. Um, now, that's not for everyone. Um, and for some families, a nursing home or inpatient hospice is a better choice. But all, all I can say <clears throat> is that having dealt with you know, nursing care my entire career, usually in an inpatient setting, um, the, the quality of the nursing care provided by hospice, the quality of the overall care was just incredible. I mean, I was so impressed. Um, compassion, uh, um, um, uh, an interdisciplinary multi multiple team approach, not just the nurses, nursing assistants, social workers, clergy, art therapists, music therapists, and they were all interested not just in my wife, but in the family who was dealing with the stress of it all. So um, just a plug for hospice care, if anybody, God forbid, is in this situation in dealing with end-of-life care, whether it's dementia or some other illness, uh, please consider it very seriously because it's, it's one of the best things we have in terms of medical care that we offer to patients. Yeah, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I remember the uh, nurses and staff coming in for the in-home hospice care for my father, and they were amazing. Uh, for lack of a better term, probably the best kind of care I've ever seen uh, for anybody in a, in a medical environment. It was it was fantastic. Helped my mom and myself out a lot. And uh, they, right there with you, they, and we we still great. maintain contact with uh, some of those people. Now, as you probably learned, hospice care isn't twenty four seven. Yeah. So <clears throat> the last five or six months were truly horrible, if I could use that term, in terms of the time I have to spend at, at, with my children. Uh, taking care of her. A 20, it was like taking care of a newborn. She was bed bound, couldn't feed herself, couldn't clean herself, couldn't take a bath, couldn't stand up for a shower, uh, and was totally incontinent. It was a disgusting mess. Uh, and I'm pretty graphic about it in the book. And I don't mean to to uh, alarm people with the, gra the graphic details, but uh, it, sort of, it sort of expresses what we went through. When she actually passed away, Ryan, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we came home from the funeral the next week and we sat around in my house, my, my children and I, and we didn't know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> we spent months just constantly washing dirty linen, 
cleaning her, sitting her up, feeding her. Uh, when she passed away, it's like, this is normal life. We forgot what it was supposed to be like. In, so, in some ways, it was a relief when she passed away, in other words. Yeah, and you get so wrapped up in that routine of care, uh, and and I know I experienced that firsthand as well. Uh, I was I was a teenager when my father passed away, but uh, I had a responsibility too. I'd come home from school every day, and um, you know my mom at that point was you know operating, still going to work. We had bills to pay and all that kind of stuff, and I'm trying to do whatever I can to help out too. And uh, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had the nurse there, but yeah, I mean there was still stuff that I had to do, my mom had to do, and I totally understand because the same thing happened with us it's when when my father passed away we were all kind of like lost we had all that we had all this yeah we had all this purpose that we were supposed to be doing on a daily basis to help out my dad and then all of a sudden that you know purpose that you had uh in that respect was gone and so it was you know time to find uh find new purpose new adventures new new things to move on to and it, it definitely is tough but most of us most adults have dealt with death of loved ones almost all right if you live long enough you're going to deal with the death of your parents grandparents houses um when i wrote this i wasn't pretending that my dealing with the death of my wife was any different than anyone else um uh but uh again my objectives in writing it were more to bring attention to this very specific cause of her death and i i I hope that your listeners will will read the book and, and understand what the purpose was yeah, and guys, make sure uh, when you're listening to this book, uh, this uh, radio show, go check out the book, uh, Lynn's Last Christmas, A Battle with Dementia. You can find that uh, on Amazon. Uh, it's available on Kindle. Uh, go check that out. Uh, you can do a quick search I did earlier. First result, super easy to find. Uh, one last question, uh, yeah. Dr. Reisig. What, uh, what's next for you? I mean, you, you worked on this book and, you know, uh, what's next? Where do you go from here? Well, I, I'm currently 67. I was 66 when Lynn passed. Uh, so I was of retirement age, but honestly, I, I had thought of working to around 70 in my career as an academic physician. Uh, what happened is that that last year was so labor intensive that I found myself leaving work early, going into work late to stay home and take care of her. I was, I was literally ignoring my uh, day job uh, I was the division chief, as you mentioned. I stepped down from that position in November of 2017, and shortly thereafter announced that I would at least partially retire on June 1st of 2018. Lynn passed away on May 6th of 2018. I thought she'd probably last a little longer than she did, but um, the coincidence is that her death and my retirement were two life-changing events that I experienced in a very short period of of time. Uh, having said that, I have no regrets. I still work part-time, by the way. Um, I have hobbies. I obviously write. I do some painting. Um, uh, and, and I still see some patients and do some research, so I'm not completely retired. Uh, but I've, I've been kept busy, and once again, I'll say that the support I've gotten from my children, three of whom live locally here, one lives in Pittsburgh now, which isn't too far away, the support you know, during her illness and during those final days, but especially in the subsequent year, has been just tremendous. And we, we are trying to lead normal lives now. I mean, not that a day goes by that every one of us doesn't think about Lynn, think about her her, her, her last words and her, her last bath and her, her last discussion, uh, but, but we're, we're trying to lead normal lives. And I think we're doing a pretty good job at it. So I'm hanging in there to 
to give you the bottom line, Ryan. Yeah, and you know, I'm just going to touch on something that I've noticed over the last year or so doing interviews with people that are right around your age group. Uh, none of you guys retire. <laughs> Yeah, it's the, it's the new uh, retirement modality. It's called work. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. My, so uh, my mom is 70 years old, and she still gets up every day. She works five days a week. Uh, well, she, she owns a beauty she owns a beauty salon. She's like, and I even told her, I'm like, Mom, you should retire. And she's like, why? What am I going to do? I'm going to sit at home and do nothing. I'm going to be really bored. I got to have something to do. And I, well, I, I just the one thing I didn't have to deal with is the common uh, complaint that if you retire, you're going to drive your spouse crazy. So. <laughs> Since my spouse, I don't have to worry about doing that. Uh, yeah, I, 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 it's nice to have a little post-retirement and what's income. Up, what's up with you boomers? How come you guys don't ever slow down? <laughs> we were shot out of a cannon. That's why we call us boomers. So we're <laughs> ready, ready to trot. <laughs> I will probably uh, do these part-time things for another few years at some point. Uh, I don't need to do it financially. and But for, for now, it keeps me busy. Let's put it that way. Uh, any any grand any grandkids on the horizon? Just one, just one. All my adult kids have been slow to get married. That's another story, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> lovely. Uh, that's okay. That's how my wife and I were too. We were together since uh, since high school, but um, we just barely got married in 2011. So <laughs> my daughter, my granddaughter's named Brielle. She's the daughter of my oldest son Brian. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pimp their names here a little bit. I my other I have two other boys, Kevin, Michael, and my daughter is Lauren. Wonderful group of children who've helped me through this all. Yeah, well, everybody needs a support system when dealing with any kind of a scenario, especially one that was, uh, you know, as, as difficult as yours. And I give you and your children massive amounts of kudos for what you guys have dealt with. And I think you writing the book and putting that out there was not just, you know, something for us uh to, to be able to understand and to learn more about the disease and the care that goes into that. But I also feel like, you know, when you, when you said you weren't quite sure what drove you to wrote it, to, to write the book, uh, I think maybe it was a little therapy for you too, the opportunity for you to kind of put your thoughts out and, and maybe uh, put them on paper. I know a lot of, a lot of my yeah. friends that are writers, that's like their, their outlet, you know, they, they write stuff to get it off of their chest in the same manner as uh, I might, you know, go to the gym, you know, and, and, and punch a punching bag. <laughs> Early days. I said, I wrote this two weeks after or within two weeks, if I wasn't writing down notes and, and, and structuring it, I would have probably just sat at my kitchen table and cried incessantly. Um, so th if that's what you mean by therapy, yeah, it was very effective then. And I, I still write. I've written a few other novels and uh, continue to write as, as a, a hobby and something I like to do. And it keeps my, my mind off of uh, the bad things that happen to Lynn. Well, Dr. Rysick, I appreciate you coming on, finding your frequency, telling us about your story, letting us know about your book. Uh, Again, you guys, go check out the book, Lynn's Last Christmas, A Battle with Dementia. Find out uh, about Dr. Rysick's story and how all of that came together. Dr. Rysick, thank you for joining us, man. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Ryan. Ladies and gentlemen, listening in on your favorite podcast outlet, please make sure to take a moment and uh, comment on the show. 
give us a, a review. We like five-star ones because they're better than four. But then again, guys, also send us your emails, info at voiceamerica.com. Let us know the episodes that you like, uh, what type of content you're looking for moving forward, and uh, maybe some possible interviews that you might want to hear. Uh, we do this show for you guys. Uh, Finding a Frequency is a Voice America original production produced right here in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. More to come right here from voiceamerica.com.